Hello, my name's Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your weekly guide to the best of the arts, culture and entertainment to enjoy in these long summer days. Join us every week by subscribing on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, don't forget to sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk. This week, we'll be wondering why, with so much television production on enforced lockdown, Channel 4 appear to have let the dogs out with a barking mad new series called Celebrity Snoop Dog. To get the true measure of a person, we must see where they live, how they live, their choices of sofa, their grasp of feng shui, their topiary. Only then can we truly know them. But how? Meanwhile, on Netflix, things have turned Polish with the new crime drama, The Woods. We'll be hearing from its creator, the great thriller writer, Harlan Coben, about the oddity of seeing your work on screen in a very foreign language. They sent me the scripts translated. I don't speak no other languages. We each have the things we're good or bad at, and I'm really, really bad with foreign languages. Plus, we'll be enjoying the new album from the British singer-songwriter Jessie Ware, whose songs are ready primed for when the nation's dance floors open. That last kiss you gave me I keep on hitting rewind First though, this week should have been the 50th edition of the Glastonbury Festival. A stellar cast, including Paul McCartney, Kendrick Lamar and Taylor Swift were lined up. Diana Ross was on the bill as the legend. Sadly, the Covid crisis intervened and the greatest of all pop festivals was cancelled. So to mark what should have been a historic weekend of festivities, It's Friday has asked Adrian Thrills, the male's music expert, and television writer Claudia Connell to imagine they were heading off with the pop-up tent and waterproof trousers for a weekend of toilet queuing and mud bathing and tell us what their greatest Glasto moments were. Adrian, I'm not going to rudely say you must have been to all of them because that's 50, but I'm sure you've been to a lot, haven't you? I certainly have, certainly over the last 20 years, and I've seen the the good, the bad, and the ugly of Glastonbury. I'd have liked to have been there in 1971 to see Bowie just uh, a year off transitioning into Ziggy Stardust. I think that would have been quite uh, quite an interesting set. But no, I started, I was actually a relative latecomer. I think the first one I really went to was 2005, where the White Stripes headlines supported by the Killers and the Killers are absolutely amazing despite the mud and the rain. But um, yeah, I've been to most, almost everyone since then and um, certainly seen uh, some really good sets. Uh, Claudia, what, what's it like uh, watching it on TV? Have you ever been and, and how does it compare watching it on TV? I've I've only been once actually. I, I've got to admit I'm I'm not I'm a bit too precious. I'm not much of a, a festival goer. Um, but I, I went once. I think it was '95 uh, was the year I went, and that was the year that Robbie had left Take That and it was having his kind of rock and roll moment and was hanging out with Oasis and uh, the Stone Roses were meant to play and they pulled out at the last minute and Pulp stood in for them and did a brilliant job. And I, I did have a great time. And actually, Oasis were just they were at their peak and they were incredible. And actually, I think we have a little clip here of them playing and live forever. I can imagine you, Claudia, bouncing away <laughs> to uh, Oasis. Adrian, you've done both, haven't you? You've obviously been 
to the to the festival and you've watched it on telly uh, what what sort of experience do we get when we watch it on telly well i think it's actually it's a fabulous presentation the way the bbc do it you know so much choice i always find the years the odd year or the odd day that i'm watching it from home i think particularly if the weather's nice, I just think, oh, I just, I wish I was there, you know, because there's nothing like the visceral experience of actually being there in the, in the crowd watching it. Then, of course, sometimes when I'm there on a really muddy year, I just think, uh, give me the comforts of my sofa. I'd rather be watching, <laughs> watching this at home because there's been some terrible years for weather and it is, uh, funny enough, they infamously called 1997 the year of the mud, little knowing that 1998 would be worse. And 2005, one of the first years I went, it was just absolutely awful. There was like, I think something like two months worth of rain in two hours just before the killers went on stage. And uh, I was there with my 10-year-old daughter and uh, saw her suddenly walking along and disappear two feet into a kind of a swamp of muddy Glastonbury loop. Um, You're selling it, Adrian. You're selling it. I <laughs> wish I was there. Um, you, you mentioned the killers. Uh, so who else was a, an absolute highlight for you over those years? I think there have been a couple of really good ones. I thought, I thought Jay-Z, when he played in 2008, uh, after Noel Gallagher had infamously said, there's no place for hip-hop at Glastonbury, Jay-Z went on and his opening song was an acoustic cover of Wonderwall. immediately kind of disarmed any doubters and tapped into the British sense of humour and it was not exactly plain sailing from there on but he delivered a, a fantastic set i thought the the stones when they finally played in in 2013 um funny enough, uh, the year after i interviewed sergio pizzorno of kasabian who were headlining and he I, I asked him you know what's it take to be a glastonbury headliner and one of the first things he said is well for starters just don't hit them with your obscure b-sides you're playing to you're playing to like an unfamiliar crowd and you want to go for the jugular and i think the stones when they played in in 2013 i think the opening four songs were jumping jack flash it's only rock and roll paint it black gimme shelter and then they went into um, a slightly tweaked song, Factory Girl, from 1968, which they revamped as Glastonbury Girl, which I think we're going to hear now. Wait for a girl, gonna sing a half-page tune. I slept since Wednesday afternoon. Wait for that Glastonbury Girl. Wait for a girl and I put up her TP. Wait for a girl, she took all my eggs. Claudia, so for you, what, what, what's what been the Glastonbury moment, apart from Oasis, obviously? Um, well, actually, Jay-Z's other half, I thought Beyonce did brilliantly when she headlined. I think that was uh, 2011. I, I love the Foo Fighters. I think they always do a brilliant show. And actually, I love Springsteen at, at Glastonbury. I, I think Adrian disagrees with me on that one. But I, that, I was watching from my armchair, and I think he may have been there. But I, I thought he was just amazing. This, he's such a sort of great physical performer. And uh, we have a clip of him here, I think, doing uh, Dancing in the Dark. Hey, 
Richard, you're a bit of a Springsteen skeptic, aren't you? I, um, I find this hard to believe, but I, I'm far from a Springsteen skeptic. I'm actually a huge fan of the boss, and I've seen him deliver some some great shows over the years. Um, I think the problem with his Glastonbury set it almost goes back to uh, Kasabian's don't you know avoid the obscure b-sides theory and uh, he played uh, it, it, there's some great songs great moments in that set but also he he played a lot of songs from a new album at the time working on dream to an audience that weren't Springsteen fans and so he kind of lost them and the a young crowd were they were chanting for born in the USA which is probably the most well-known Bruce song of course he didn't play it and uh, at the end of the set there was these thousands of disconsolate teenagers think I think you too fell foul of it slightly as well in in 2011 when uh, they they finally got around to playing they were supposed to play the year before but Bono had uh, injured his back and again a great live band but out of their usual arena comfort zone they they somehow just didn't connect uh, they had to contend to be fair with abysmal weather and uh, the stage apparently was like an ice rink and bono later blamed their poor performance as he saw it um on wearing the wrong shoes it was all down the right studs on there exactly yeah you can uh, go online there's a there's a kind of online version of of, of the festival uh, this uh, this year that's available via facebook but obviously it's it's not the same <laughs> On the subject of memories, Harlan Coburn's work is full of them, and many of them are best kept untold. The multi-million selling thriller writer is obsessed with secrets, often dark ones, lying, waiting to be discovered just below the surface of apparently comfortable suburban life. Since 1990, almost all of his brilliant books have been set in New Jersey. But when Sky TV bought the rights to The Five in 2015, they transposed the action to Britain. Three years ago, Coburn signed a lucrative deal with Netflix to bring 14 of his novels to the screen. And the first two of those, Safe and The Stranger, again saw the action moved across the Atlantic to Britain. For his latest adaptation, The Woods, things have gone even further from his East Coast origins. The thriller about a teenage summer camp long in the past has been set in Poland with an all-Polish cast, Netflix's first venture into the Polish language, and how well it works in translation. This week, it is Netflix's most-watched series in Britain, and I'm delighted Harlan joins us now on Zoom from his home in New Jersey. Your books have been translated into 45 different languages. It's one thing seeing one of your books on the shelf in another language. What's it like seeing a TV series in another language? The Woods is in Polish. I love it. Um, it's been, it's, it's super exciting and it's, uh, it's super fun. Uh, the way I look at it, I mean, people like, they seem to think that all adaptation should be slavishly devoted to the text. But if you think about your favorite movies or your favorite adaptations, usually that's, that's not the case. That's usually a mistake. So I've really enjoyed moving it. You know, I've moved shows to England. I've moved shows to France, Germany, and now the woods uh, in Poland. And uh, I always think it gives it a fresh perspective. Do you understand Polish? Are you watching subtitled or, or oh, yeah. no, I yeah. watch it subtitled. They send me the scripts, uh, translated so uh some of the other nuances you have to rely on 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 the people who are making it so yeah no i don't speak any uh i don't speak i don't speak no other languages i it's my we each have our, are the things we're good or bad at and i'm really really bad with foreign languages i've made 
two TV shows and a movie in French. And I've been there, I don't know how many times, and I can't speak one word. <laughs> Even when I've written the scripts, I, I can't understand what they're saying. You've got this deal with Netflix uh, to turn your uh, books into series. Um, and as you say, they've been transposed i mean uh safe and the stranger people will have seen those on netflix in the uk using yeah. great uh, british actors um well what what is lost i mean your your books are so geographically specific when you take it out of that context what's lost i don't think anything's lost um it's just different you know, they once asked James Cain, who wrote The Postman Rings Twice and Double Indemnity years ago, they said to him, don't you hate what Hollywood has done to your books? And he said, they've done nothing to my books. They're right there on the shelf. What the TV show is doesn't change. When someone says a, an adaptation ruins or improves a book, it doesn't. It's, it's a book. And it's a, they're very, very separate things. The way I'm start, I look at it, frankly, is so it's sort of like, I'm, I, I wrote a song and I recorded a song the, instead of a book. Let's say I, re, I, I, I recorded a song. It was a hit song. And now a, another band is covering it. Well, I don't want that band to, to, to sound exactly the same as me. What would be the fun in that? So I want a, a Polish band to bring some of their culture and, and, and their idiosyncrasies and their traditions to it or a British or whatever it is. So that's kind of how I look at it. It makes it it kind of makes it fresh. I mean, in the case of the UK shows, you mentioned The Stranger, for example. I think it's a cool hybrid of what you guys do so well, the British do so well on TV, and an American sort of story, and, and you put them together, and hopefully the, the sum is greater than the parts. And, and the themes are universal, aren't they? They're about family, they're about friends, they're about suburbia, they're about lies that are hidden beneath yes. the surface. Yeah, I mean, yes, it does change the story and change the, the location, of course, but who wants the exact same story again? Hopefully, <laughs> you can go back and read the book or you read the book beforehand. You'll still find uh, a lot of changes and surprises. Also, some of these books I wrote quite a while ago. The Woods I wrote, um, it came out, I think, in 2006 or seven. So that's 14 years ago. Um, there's things I would want to change about it as well. Um, and I, And so... I'm, very, I'm different, I think, than most novelists in that I'm very open to that as long as you kind of keep the heart and soul and as long as it's good. The other thing, of course, is, is that a book in a TV or in a movie or whatever, they're very different mediums. One is visual. Uh, one, you, you know, the books I get in somebody's head, I am writer, director, actor, key grip. I don't even know what a key grip is, but I'm a key grip when you write a book. <laughs> but in TV, it's all, it's collaboration um, and it's very visual. So the storytelling should be different has to be different uh, you said that very different mediums but i i the interesting thing about netflix is i wonder whether the ability to plan your own schedule actually makes it much more like the way we consume a novel we can that, binge or we can take a little bit at a time absolutely true so i mean uh, the shows that i'm doing on netflix would not have been made a number of years ago you would never when I first had an interest or first was not actually didn't have an interest, but when people would talk about doing TV, you know, in America, it was 22 episodes, 47 minutes, exactly an episode, certain amount of act breaks. You have to solve a crime each week. You can't have the continue. That's, that's not what we're doing. In a sense, what you're talking about is exactly right. The woods or, or the stranger, it's like a novel right on the screen. You watch it and one six episodes, one eighty episode. I can make the episodes 50 minutes, 40 minutes, 60 minutes, whatever we kind of want 
um, to do. And you can consume it, as most people do, all in one stretch. I think for the stranger, the average person watched all eight episodes in under three days. So, you know, that's, that's, that's like a novel. You just, you hopefully, you know, you keep clicking to keep wanting to watch. It's what they call binge. When I watched uh, Safe and the Stranger, I noticed there you were credited as the producer. You're an incredibly prolific writer. How on earth do you find time, or is that just an honorific title? Are you there with the nitty-gritty <laughs> on these TV series? Yeah, the British ones especially are very involved. There's a team of four of us that we've also made a, one called The Five, which was on Sky in the UK, um, starring O.T. Fag Benley and Tom Cullen that we made. And it's with um, Red Productions, Nicholas Schindler, who's just one of your most talented uh, producers. She did Queer as Folk and Last Tango in Halifax and Happy Valley. And so I work with the, her in Red Productions and our lead writer has been a guy, Danny Brocklehurst on all three shows and a guy named Richard Fee, who's our producer. And four of us really, really work hard I mean, all aspects. I watched over 300 audition tapes for The Stranger to help. Um, Seriously? How, I'm sorry, yeah. Alan. How do you find time to find <laughs> if you're watching 300 audition tapes? It's all I do. This is all I do. You know, I have no hobbies. I have no my, my kids are starting to get grown. I don't have much of, of, a, of a life uh, other than that. The, the Polish show, not, not nearly as involved. I mean, I, was a, I read the scripts. I commented on them. I made some changes. I... So the edits, I made changes there as well. I wa but I, I watched a lot of the uh, rushes and the dailies they can send to me every day so I can watch what's, what's being filmed. But of course, not speaking the language and being that far away, it's much harder to be involved. But yeah, no, um, I break out the story with this team. The four of us have done it three times now, and hopefully we'll be doing it a fourth time um, at, for another book. So um, th This may be very rude, Harlan, but I have this idea of you um, that you cannot drive down a suburban street without looking at the houses and wondering what's going on behind those front doors. Is that how uh, it works? So you're just a very, very nosy person. Um, you're, not too, you're not wrong. <laughs> uh, I, I say that right, fiction writing is always asking what if, is always imagining some other scenario whenever, all, all through life. I mean, my new book is The Boy from the Woods. And so when I was walking in the woods one day, hiking, which bores the heck out of me, after a while, okay, a tree's a tree. I don't get the excitement. I'd rather be walking a street and seeing a bookstore or shops and a coffee store. You know, after a while, a tree's a tree. I get bored. But I saw a kid around six years old just walking around. And I started out, so it was always, what if? Well, what if a six-year-old boy just came walking out of the woods? And he remembers no life but being in these woods, remembers no parents, remembers nothing else, swears he always lived there, fed himself, broke into houses, whatever. And now 30 years pass and we still don't know what happened to him. And another kid goes missing in the woods. Well, start playing with that idea. So that's how my, my, I'm always, uh, if you want to write fiction, I think it's a great way. When you see someone on the street, I tell my kids, every person you see in the street has hopes and dreams. Well, what are those hopes and dreams? And now you're starting to create a character, start thinking about what's gone on in their lives. It's good for both empathy, but it's also really good for storytelling. Character is absolutely vital, but so is plot for you, Holland. I mean, there are so many twists. Do you ever catch yourself out? Do you ever think, oh, <laughs> I didn't see that coming? Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, uh, we're doing these productions. The next one uh, is The Innocent, which we're filming uh, Netflix Spain, uh, starring Mario Casas. And... Um, so I had that book, I think it was from 2000, 
three or four and I hadn't read it in years. And as I'm reading, I'm like, where am I going with this? Like, what's, oh, you know, like I was actually fooling myself every once in a while. I do, I, I, I probably over like twists. Twists, um, there's very rarely is a twist I don't, I don't like. So yeah, if you don't like twists and turns, I'm probably not <laughs> the guy. <laughs> that, that, it's not just you, Harlan. I mean, mystery, crime, thrillers, they really are of the moment. Those are the books that sell like never before. What does that say about our times, do you think? <laughs> well, first, I could argue that that's, it's always sort of been that way. If I asked you to name your top five favorite books that are over 100 years old, I guarantee you all of them have a crime in them. Yeah, because Sayeski, <laughs> Wilde, Dickens, Dumas, you know, they all had crime in them. It's just sort of now we look at it slightly differently, but very few novels of the past did not have that. So in a sense, I think the answer might be that we are keeping in that tradition of still telling a story. It might be the social novel, it might be blah, 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 and all the stuff that people say, but it's still entertaining. Um, and that, I think, is probably why crime fiction. And, so, and also, we're living in the golden age of crime fiction, where it's never been done by so many people of various backgrounds, all nationalities, genders, uh, viewpoints. Um, and that makes it really, really exciting. Um, as you mentioned in TV also, like for the first time now, I just thought today, and I'm, this will sound braggy, but I'm not trying to make it that way. The Woods is the number one show on Netflix in the UK. Think about that. A Polish language TV show that you're watching with subtitles, most people, is the number one show in the UK on Netflix. That would never have happened years ago. And that's great for everybody that we can watch shows from other backgrounds and other nationalities. And the same thing with the with the crime books. So I think, it, you know, we're living in the golden age of that. Now, uh, as, as a final thought, I think a lot of people have thought, I know what I'm going to do in lockdown. I'm going to write a novel. Right. I'm not sure how many people have got round to it. We will see. Right. Give them a word of advice, Alan. Tell them what well, they exactly should do. Exactly what I was saying before about the what if. Take a piece of paper, write on the top of it, what if. And then just start coming up with scenarios. Look around. The same way I was describing all of the books that I've written have started with a, with a what if. You know, I saw a, 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 on The Stranger, I saw a website about faking pregnancies and the woman who had fake pregnancy. Well, what if somebody dropped that bomb on somebody that their, that their wife had done it? What if she started dropping bombs like that on other people? Can I make a story around that? Asking the what ifs in your own life, I think is a great way. That's not going to take a day. It's not going to take an hour a day. I've done it sometimes for two or three months writing what ifs until I have enough to start writing a novel. So my first thing would be just try to keep writing down what if. Don't worry if it's a terrible idea or not. No one's going to see it besides you. And eventually fill up pages of what ifs and then see if a few start clicking in your head. Thank you so much for joining us, Harlan. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where the Daily Mail's writers assess the week's new releases and tell us what is worth allowing into your social bubble and what should be studiously kept at their new distance of one metre plus. First up, the Daily Mail's film man, Brian Viner. Uh, Brian, in uh, the Prime Minister's statement uh, this week, he said that uh, cinemas were going to reopen uh, on July the 4th. What can we expect then? Uh, well, I think, I mean, yes, cinemas are reopening, uh, but in obviously in a, a very different form to that which we are 
familiar with them. And the worst thing I can tell you, Jim, is that there's going to be no pick and mix, apparently. So you're... What? Yeah. Well, that's me. I'm not, I'm not going. <laughs> you won't, but... So, no, I don't think I will either. But, yes, it's good news for, the, for, for all those uh, filmmakers who have made films that they only ever wanted to be seen on the big screen as big as possible. And the best example of that I can give you is Christopher Nolan, the British director who's made a big blockbuster called Tenet. And he has steadfastly said that he would not release it, wouldn't want to see it on a, any kind of streaming platform. And so he's got his wish because, you know, it would, by the sound of it, it will, you know, be very much better watched on a, on a big screen, the bigger the better. So, and, and that's true of other films, but there will still continue to be streaming, film streaming and the streaming platforms will, will stay open and, you know, things won't get back to normal for some time in, in cinema terms. So I think we'll probably have to wait and see exactly, you know, who's going to stick with the, um, stick with the streaming platform thing and who's going to bring their films out on in, in cinemas. And of course, you know, you know, not as many people are going to be able to sit in cinemas is, is going to make a big difference. So audiences won't be, audience numbers won't be the same. So I think some big directors will say, well, actually, let's just stick in, let's get our £14.99 or whatever we're going to charge people and stream them. Before that happens, stuff is still coming out on streaming. And, and what's coming out this week that's caught your eye? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a Netflix film out uh, called Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Uh, so you can find that on Netflix. It was supposed to come out at the time of the Eurovision Song Contest, but of course that was cancelled, so it, it, was, it was held back. Uh, it's a comedy. It stars Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. Uh, it's set there. There are an Icelandic pop duo called Fire Saga, um, hence the title, and they're greatest desire is to represent Iceland in the, in the song contest. Uh, and that eventually happens because all the other contenders die mysteriously. I won't <laughs> tell you any more than that. So uh, off they go to Edinburgh to represent Iceland and cue lots and lots of different misadventures. I'll tell you in a moment how funny I think that is. Uh, but Piers Brosnan pops up playing Lars's father. Lars, as I've just said, is played by uh, Will Ferrell. So the idea of Piers Brosnan playing his father is, is um, pretty ridiculous. But anyway, uh, so Lars and, and um, Eric, his father, have a pretty edgy relationship. Eric thinks Lars is a total hapless loser, which indeed he is. Uh, but eventually they, they bond. And this clip that we're about to hear is, is, the, is that scene where they, where they come together finally. <laughs> always love secret how did i let this happen oh it doesn't matter what happened what happens now is that you have to fight for her yes you have to fight for her like you fought for that stupid song contest fight for your dream of a life with her fight like a viking so, sorry to disturb but you, you two do know that iceland made it into the eurovision finals what why the hell didn't you tell me yeah, uh, were we talking yeah. about Dick Van Dyke and his accents recently? <laughs> yes, that's Piers Brosnan. You'll be pleased to hear he doesn't actually sing. So there's no repeat <laughs> of uh, Mamma Mia, which, of course, uh, yes, was all, all, also had a link to the Eurovision Song Contest because of, because of ABBA. And indeed, it's ABBA that turns uh, the young Lars onto the song contest. He becomes obsessed with it. Uh, his childhood friend is Sigrid, the Rachel McAdams character and the and the sort of running gag is that she's always been in love with him she's totally in love with him but he doesn't he he just considers her to be a friend and that's what they're talking 
talking about there. Uh, are they finally going to sort of consummate their, their love for each other? And how much you enjoy all this sort of depends on how much you like uh, Will Ferrell's sort of emotionally stunted man-child act that we've seen in so many films over the years, the Anchorman films, Daddy's Home, Stepbrothers and so on. Um, I must admit, I'm, I think it relies very much on the quality of the script, which in the Anchorman movies, you know, was, was, was sharp pretty much throughout, but um, not so much this one. He, he, he co-wrote the film, uh, it goes on for way too long and, you know, it just, I mean, it's over two hours, Jim. And I think for this kind of film, which is basically, a, uh, and also the, the director, David Dobkin, never quite resolves the problem of how you parody something which is effectively a parody of itself already, the Eurovision Song Contest. So, um, but, you know, there are some laughs. Dan, Dan Stevens pops up as the Russian entrant, uh, channeling his inner George Michael. He's very, he's very funny. Uh, Graham Norton plays himself, um, and there are some, you know, there are some pleasures in it, but it's too long. The the script isn't good enough. There are some very cheap gags that wouldn't really raise the tone of a sixth form review, and so uh, I'm afraid I won't I won't quite give it nul point, but um, I'm going to have to say it's a miss. <laughs> Not, not one for the big screen, I don't think, uh, Brian. What, what else is there out there? So on a number of streaming platforms, there's a film called Irresistible, which is written and directed by John Stewart. And some listeners may be familiar with him. He's a, an American satirist. He had a, a show called The Daily Show, which ran for many years on a, on a late night American TV. So this is a, a comedy and a satire. It stars Steve Carell and... He plays a political consultant, a sort of big wig in Washington, D.C., called Gary Zimmer, who spots a, he sees a video uh, which has sort of gone viral of a farmer and retired marine colonel in, in a small town in rural Wisconsin, played by Chris Cooper. And this guy has gone to his local town hall and delivered this very impassioned speech about sort of citizens' rights and that kind of thing. And Steve Carell suddenly sees this fellow as, a, as a, an opportunity for him to go out and, and make him run for mayor, which he had, the Chris Cooper character had no intention of doing, but make him run for mayor on the democratic ticket. And, and that way he can sort of make the whole thing become a, like a national campaign and, uh, and elevate this guy and he can become the sort of poster boy for the Democratic Party. Um, However, um, so he's representing the Democrats, the Steve Carell character, but then Rose Byrne turns up in the clip we're about to hear. She turns up and she's representing the Republican Party and, and the, the whole thing in this little tiny sort of homespun folksy town in the middle of Wisconsin becomes a battleground for, the, for these two great kind of gi giants. Uh, so let's listen to this clip. The Democrat Party can't win. They're getting desperate. They don't know us. They don't want to know us. And they look no, down on our No, bodies. that's we. You're D.C. elite. Oh, no, actually, I'm from here. Faith, I didn't know that. You're from Wisconsin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, Deer Lincoln. I'm from Deer Lincoln. What? Oh. Whoa. Wow, so this campaign has been a bit of a homecoming. It really is, Brooke. Thank no, you. No, 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 no. That's a lie. That's a lie. No, it's... You're lying. It's, it's She's lying. That's no... That's, what are you even <laughs> okay. doing? Well, that's here. always a great here. and spirited discussion. Thank you She's lying. John Stewart and Steve Carell, that's quite a combination. D does it work? 
It is. And, and Rose Byrne is a, is a very good comic actress as well. Um, yes, I mean, on the whole, it does. The comedy comes largely from the clash between the sort of folksy people of this town of Deerluck and in uh, Wisconsin and these these Washington elitists who are kind of spoiled and privileged and entitled. Um, and there's a sort of satirical, strong satirical element, which is basically Stuart having a go at the the way in which campaigning, political campaigning in America is all about the money and not really about the integrity or the or anything else, but it's all about the fundraising. There's a twist at the end. I think the t- twist comes too late, actually, because by then you're beginning to tire slightly of, of you know, this, this, the, the, the satirical thrust of it. Um, so the t- twist comes a bit too late, but um, it's, it's very watchable. Steve Carell's always fun to watch in a, in a comedy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think I would recommend it and let's call it a hit. Now I'm joined by the male's music critic, Adrian Thrills. So, Adrian, no Glastonbury to satiate our, our need for live acts. What, what recordings are out this week? Um, yeah, well, the recording's still coming thick and fast, and the first one's from uh, an American band who actually were due to be playing Glastonbury on Saturday. They're on the same bill as, as Paul McCartney on the Pyramid stage. They're three sisters from California by the, the name of Haim, and they, uh, they started out actually in a family band with their parents, believe it or not, called Rockenheim. And uh, they, uh, they're in the kind of grand tradition of uh, sibling trios. You know, it goes back to the Andrews sisters, the Bee Gees, the Jonas brothers. And uh, they're in that kind of grand tradition of classic West Coast rock. They, they kind of owe a little bit to the Bangles and Fleetwood Mac. And uh, they actually topped the UK charts with their first album, seven or eight years ago and uh, they're now back with their third which has the very eye-rolling ironic playful title women in music part three and um apparently it came to danielle heim in a dream and her sisters seized on it immediately said we've got to call the album women in music part three it's a really good record actually it builds slightly on their kind of classic rock heritage it adds a few more strings to their bow quite literally on a couple of orchestral tracks there's uh, there's some jazzy interludes there's a bit of reggae yes yeah, so yeah, heim yeah very much in the tradition of classic west coast rock with a with a few modern tweaks and i think that the track we're going to hear illustrates that quite well it's it's called the steps I missed out on parts one and two, but I can see where part three is coming from, Adrian. Yeah, there, uh, there's some interesting songs on here. There's one called uh, Man from the Magazine, which uh, actually examines the maddening experience of guitar shopping as a female musician, which apparently isn't particularly un- enlightening. There's, uh, there's another track called Summer Girl, which samples the classic Herbie Flowers bass riff from Walk on the Wild Side, the Lou Reed song. It's, it's a great kind of summer record, perfect for a heat wave. And so you're giving it a hit or a miss? I'm, give, I'm giving it the thumbs up. It's a hit. And what else have you got for us? So the, the second album this week, it's the, the fourth album from a, from a UK singer called Jessie Ware. She's from, from South London. She, she kind of came to fame uh, with her debut album in 2010, Devotion, which was shortlisted for the Mercury Prize. And it was a very kind of sultry, down-tempo 
dance record. Um, and she, at that point, she seemed to have like a glittering future, but it didn't quite materialise. Her, her two subsequent albums didn't fare quite so well. Um, and she had a disastrous festival appearance, by all accounts, uh, not at Glastonbury, but at Coachella in, in 2018, where the sound was bad. The uh, a young Californian audience didn't like the songs and her, her confidence was shattered. And uh, her mum, who was actually there, kind of said maybe she should think about uh, calling it a day. But uh, but she didn't. She She kind of went back and totally... Kind of reinvented herself initially as a as a podcast host uh, along with her mum they they launched this uh, kind of lifestyle podcast from home called table manners where where jesse and lenny kind of talk to the likes of ed sheeran and cheryl cole over a home-cooked meal and it's had a spin-off recipe book and kind of really just given her the breathing space to uh, to kind of explore an alternative career but also maybe think a bit more about her music and she's come back with um in the grand tradition of Dua Lipa, Sophie Ellis Baxter and Lady Gaga a kind of a lockdown dance album and it's um it's like a kind of fantasy dance floor and obviously it is a fantasy at the moment in that no nightclubs are open but it uh, it kind of harks back to like classic 80s funk there's um some really good high energy dance tracks i think the one we're going to listen to um save a kiss i can certainly hear some uh, a hint of donna summer in there i think that last kiss you gave me i keep on hitting rewind And when the nightclubs finally open, do you think this is going to fill the floors? Um, I think it may well be, actually. It's, it's, we'll have to content ourselves with uh, kitchen discos at the moment. But it's, it's, it's a solid comeback. I mean, it's not the world's most original dance album, but I think um, it, it's a kind of a solid return. And I would uh, just on the side of calling it a hit. And finally, Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's television writer. So, uh, Claudia, what have you got for us this week on TV? Well, it's not a brilliant week ahead for TV. There's just not much in the way of new stuff at all. So I'm going to single out a repeat. Um, Marvellous. This was a, a one-off drama that first screened six years ago, and it won a BAFTA for Best Drama. Um, it's on BBC Two this coming Wednesday. It's the story of a man called Neil Baldwin, um, who had learning difficulties, and his whole life he always confounded people by sort of going way beyond their expectations of him. Um, Neil doesn't sort of have the fear of failure that so many of us have, so he sort of manages to achieve these extraordinary things. Um, and, and this drama is Neil's life story, um, and it's uh, played by Toby Jones, who is just gives them a stunning performance. Neil sort of doesn't see any limitations. So after losing his job as a clown, he decides that he's going to get a job at Stoke City, which is the football club that he loves. And he ends up doing that and he becomes their kit man and their mascot. And he strikes up this sort of lifelong friendship with the manager, Lou Macari, who, who describes him as the best signing I ever made. And he just becomes part of the club's identity. And uh, we have a little clip here. 
I'm a friend of the Archbishop of Canterbury. What are you qualified to do? Manage Stoke City or, or, or be a vicar. What exactly does it entail, this job? There aren't many mums who'd let their sons run off to join the circus. Welcome to Keele University. You can't just get things by asking. I can. Is Tony Benning today? How do you fancy coming to work for me? Kept man. Toby Jones. I've always wanted to be happy. In the network premiere. So uh, I decided to be. What's the Neil Baldwin Football Club? My own team. I'm just the club president. Marvellous. On BBC Two and BBC Two HD. Just makes you smile listening to that. Why, why are they doing it now? Is there some special reason for it? Are they, or, or has the BBC just run out of new programmes? I, I, yeah, I, I think that's it. I, I think they're just sort of looking into the archives and seeing what they can rehash. And I'm, I'm glad that they've picked this one because it's it's just lovely. I mean, it's sentimental, but it's not schmaltzy. And it's just it just has such, such a sort of a, a big heart. It's, it's a really, really brilliant drama. A really brilliant drama. So I think you're going to call it a... I'm, I'm going to say this is a hit. And, and is there anything new we can look out for? Well, well there is something new, yeah. Channel 4 tonight. Um, this is called Celebrity Snoop Dogs. And, you know, I would just love to have been in the, the think tank <laughs> meeting where they came up with this because I think they just must all have been suffering from sunstroke or something. I mean, it was filmed in lockdown, so I am prepared to give them a little bit of licence for that. But, um, my word. I mean, it's just... So the idea is that two celebrities open up their homes and we have to guess who lives there and, and uh, the narrator gives us a series of clues, which sounds exactly like Through the Keyhole. And it is exactly like Through the Keyhole. With one twist, it's the dog that's showing us around. Um, let, let's listen to it. How to penetrate this deeply personal world, jealously guarded from view? This was the great unanswerable question of our time. But now, technology allows us to delve deeper into the lives of our favourite celebrities than ever before. Into their homes in the most unobtrusive, unimaginable way possible. We strap cameras to their dogs. Genius. Gloria, I think unimaginable is the word. I mean, this is Alan Partridge monkey tennis, isn't it? It is, isn't it? And that's, 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 that's Kevin McLeod doing the voiceover of Grand Design. So I can only assume it was some contractual obligation he had with Channel 4 or something. It's, um, it's, it's really extraordinary. I mean, one, the dogs are nice. One is a, a I think it's called a Lassa As- Abso, it's like it's a Tibetan terrier and the other is a Labrador. Um, I'm not allowed to say the celebrities that they belong to, but one is a Scottish comedian and the other is, um, is strictly a secret. Little clue there. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the dogs are nice. The dogs are nice. It's, I, you know, I, I was hoping it might be sort of so bad it was good, but it, it's not. It's, it's just bad and it's a miss. <laughs> Well, now you know what should be enjoyed with a takeaway pint and what should probably remain in strict self-isolation. My thanks to Brian, Claudia and Adrian. And finally, we head across the pond to find out how things are in the city that, at least until the pandemic struck, never sleeps. Our woman in New York is the male's own celebrity, celebrity spotter, Jackie Stephen. Jackie, I've got the privilege of being able to uh, look at you via Zoom and you have had your hair done. It looks great. How did that happen? So New York, it's open for hair, is it? 
We opened on Monday in what they call phase two and salons were one of the things that opened. So I booked an appointment last week and I went in there and you can't stand in the salon. You have to wait outside. You have to phone them to tell them you're there and they let you in. You have to sanitize. You've got to have a mask on. It's like the Starship Enterprise in there. They've all got white coats on, big um, plastic visas or visas i don't know how you pronounce it and um but they're sweating up like crazy because it's so hot in there they've got plastic screens or glass screens between each cubicle and the poor stylists are just sweating buckets there and have to keep stopping to wipe down <laughs> their things to be able to see your hair are they able to talk to you i mean can they ask you where you're going on your holidays yeah, they can, but you can't hear a word they're saying because they've also got a mouth mask on as well. So you've got the glass, the mouth mask, and it's sort of completely covered. So you can't really say much. You can't even say if they say, do you want any more off? Because they've just got to cut it to their heart's content. It made life very <laughs> difficult. But the good thing also on Monday was we were then allowed to go to restaurants for outdoor dining which was great. So I was able to sit outside without a mask. If you're sitting, you don't have to wear a mask. And uh, you can have a drink from a glass. You know, we've been drinking from plastic for so long now. So it was a great treat to have a pint of lager in a glass. And uh, people came along, uh, it was a TV crew, a Chinese TV crew, came along to film people out of lockdown to see how it felt. And everyone they went to said, no, I don't want to be on TV. Well, not me. I'll be on TV. I'll be on TV. Come over here. So they came over to me and I just didn't stop talking, basically. I'm practically the face of Beijing TV now. Because <laughs> if you give me a camera crew and a microphone, I'll do anything. I hope you haven't done anything in the past that's being dug up. Because I understand in America at the moment, there's a sort of McCarthyite checking of your old social media going on. There really is. CBS, Showtime, MTV and VH1, they've all hired this California-based investigator called Edward Myers. And his job is, is to snoop into social media accounts and find posts that could land the shows in hot water in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. Jimmy Kimmel has disappeared from view at the moment because somebody found something in which he said the N-word. So goodness knows where he is. He's saying that he's taking time off to spend time with his family. But yes, they're going through posts, and I'm still on the naughty step on Twitter because they misunderstood something that I said. And it's very difficult. It, it is like a, the McCarthyite era. You cannot say or do anything. You can't, you know, it, it's very, very difficult to say anything about a black actor, for example. You cannot say if someone gives a bad performance because then you're considered racist. And I think that it's got a bit ridiculous. I'm all in favor of the Black Lives Matter movement. But when you can't say anything, for fear of being hauled over the coals, coals by a private detective. I think things have gone too far. Do you think that's going to slightly soften? Uh, is it simply because we're right in the heart of this uh, uh, controversy? Or, or, or is this going to be the way things are going to happen from now on? I think it's the way it's going to happen from now on. I notice in Britain that the BBC is now being committed to 25% uh, mixed race actors or directors and you know pretty much everything and I think it's going to be the same in America. America is better than Britain in, in that respect. There are more black actors on TV. There's much greater representation across the board of mixed race but it's still very very small compared to white people and as I said a few weeks ago it's still very interesting that your Samuel L. Jackson, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Will Smith, none of the big wigs are coming out praising Black Lives Matter at all. And 
again, it's because they're part of the white establishment. Very interesting, Jack. But lovely speaking to you as always. And you. And that's it from It's Friday. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And if you'd like to drop us a line directly, we're on It's Friday at mailplus.co.uk. Until next week, I'm Jim White. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.